Section 3 of Around the World on a Bicycle, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Around the World on a Bicycle, Volume 2, by Thomas Stevens. Chapter 2, Part 1, Persia and the Meshed Pilgrim Road. It rains quite heavily during the night, but clears off again in the early morning, and at eight o'clock I take my departure, Mirza Hazan refusing to allow his son and heir to accept a present in acknowledgment of the hospitality received at his hands. The whole male population of the village is assembled again at the spot where their experience of yesterday has taught them I should probably mount, and the housetops overlooking the same spot, and commanding a view of the road across the plain to the eastward, are crowded with women and children. The female portion of my farewell audience present quite a picturesque appearance, being arrayed in their holiday garments of red, blue, and other bright colors, in honor of Friday, the Mohammedan Sabbath. Four miles of most excellent camel path lead across a gravelly plain, affording a smooth, firm, wheeling surface, notwithstanding the heavy rains of the previous night. But beyond the plain, the road leads over the pass of Sardurku, one of the many spurs of the Ellsberg range that reach out towards the south. This spur consists of saline hills that present a very remarkable appearance in places. The rocks are curiously honeycombed by the action of the salt, and the yellowish earthly portion of the hills are fantastically streaked and seamed with white. A trundle of a couple of miles brings me to the summit, from which point I am able to mount, and with brake firmly in hand, glide smoothly down the eastern slope. After descending about a mile, I am met by a party of travelers who give me friendly warning of deep water a little further down the mountain. After leaving them, my road follows down the winding bed of a stream that is probably dry the greater part of the year, but during the spring thaws, and immediately after a rainstorm, a stream of brackish muddy water a few inches deep trickles down the mountain and forms a most disagreeable area of sticky salt mud at the bottom. The street this morning can more truthfully be described as yellow liquid mud than as water, and both myself and the wheel present anything but a prepoposing appearance in ten minutes after starting down its grimy channel. I am, however, congratulating myself upon finding it so shallow, and begin to think that, in describing the water as nearly over their donkeys' backs, the travelers were but indulging their natural propensity as subjects of the Shah, and worthy followers in the footsteps of Aeneas. About the time I have arrived at this comforting conclusion, I am suddenly confronted by a pond of liquid mud that bars my further progress down the mountain. A recent slide of land and rock has blocked up the narrow channel of the stream, and backed up the thick yellow liquid into a pool of uncertain depth. There is no way to get around it. Perpendicular walls of rock and slippery yellow clay rise sheer from the water on either side. There is evidently nothing for it but to disrobe without more ado and try the depth. Besides being thick with mud, the water is found to be that icy, cutting temperature peculiar to cold brine, and after wading about in it for fifteen minutes, first finding a fordable place, and then carrying clothes and wheel across, I emerge onto the bank formed by the landslip looking as woebegone a species of humanity as can well be imagined. Plastered with a coat of thin yellow mud from head to foot, chilled through and through, and shivering like a Texas steer in a norther, feet cut and bleeding in several places from contact with the sharp rocks, and no clean water to wash off the mud. With the assistance of knife, pocket handkerchief, and sundry theological remarks which need not be reproduced here, I finally succeed in getting off at least a greater portion of the mud and putting on my clothes. The discomfort is only of temporary duration. The agreeable warmth of the afterglow exhilarates both mind and body, 
and with the disappearance of the difficulty to the rear comes the satisfaction of having found it no harder to overcome. A little good wheeling is encountered toward the bottom of the pass, and then comes the area of wet salt flats interspersed with saline rivulets, those innocent-looking little streamlets, the deceptive clearness of which tempts the thirsty and uninitiated wearfarer to drink. Few travelers in desert countries but have been deceived by those innocuous-looking streamlets once, and equally few are the people who suffer themselves to be deceived by their smooth, pellucid aspect a second time, for a mouthful of either strongly saline or alkaline water from one of them creates an impression on the deceived one's palate and mind that guarantees him to be weariness personified for the remainder of his life. Since a certain experience in the Bitter Creek country, Wyoming, the writer prides himself on being able to distinguish drinkable water from the salty or alkaline article almost as far as it can be seen, and a stream about which the least suspicion is entertained is invariably tasted with gingerly hesitancy to begin with. Soon after noon, I reached the village of Kishlag, where a halt of an hour or so is made to refresh the inner man with tea, raw eggs, and figs, a queer enough bill of fare for dinner, but no more queer than the people from whom it is obtained. Some of my readers have doubtless heard of the Milician waiter who could never be brought to see any inconsistency in asking the guests of the restaurant whether they would take tea or coffee, and then telling them that there was no tea, they would have to take coffee. The proprietor of the little Tachkan in Kishlag asked me if I want coffee, and then, in strict conformity with the curious inconsistency first discovered and spoken of at Alivion Kef, he informs me he has nothing but tea. The country thereabout is evidently the birthplace of Irish bulls. When the ancestors of modern handy Andes were running wild in the bogs of Connemara, the people of Kayafanka and Kishlag were indulging in Irish bulls of the first water. The crowd at Kishlag are good-natured and comparatively well-behaved, in reply to their questionings, I tell them that I am journeying from Yangidania to Meshed. The new world is a faraway, shadowy realm to these ignorant Persian villagers, almost as much out of their little unenlightened world as though it were really another planet. They evidently think that in going to Meshed I am making a pilgrimage to the shrine of Iman Riza, for some of them commence inquiring whether or no Yangidonians are Muslims. The weather clerk inaugurates a regular march zephyr in the east, during the brief halt at Kishlag, and in addition to that doubtful favor blowing against me, the road leading out is lumpy as far as the cultivated area extends, and then it leads across a rough, stony plain that is traversed by a network of small streams, similar to those encountered yesterday at Shafarabad. To the left, the abutting front of the Ellsberg Mountains is streamed up and frescoed with salt, that in places vies in whiteness with the lingering patches of snow higher up. To the right extends the gray, level plain, interspersed with small cultivatable areas for a fashk or two, beyond which lies the great Damascamanan, salt desert, that comprises a large portion of the interior of Persia. Wild asses abound on the Dashik Namak, and wandering bands of these animals occasionally stray up in this direction. The Persians consider the flesh of the wild donkey as quite a delicacy, and sometimes hunt them for their meat. They are said to be untamable, unless caught when very young, and are then generally too slender-limbed to be of any service in carrying weights. Wild goats abound in the Elberg Mountains, the villagers hunt them also for their meat, but the flesh of the wild goat is said to contribute largely to the prevalence of sore eyes among the people. The Persians will eat wild donkey, wild goat, and the flesh of camels, but only the very poor people, people who cannot afford to be fastidious, ever touch a piece of beef. gush e gosfang mutton, is the stable meat of the country. The general aspect of the country immediately south of the Ellsberg Mountains, beyond the circumscribed area of cultivation about the villages, is that of a desert. Desolate, Verdulous and forbidding. One can scarcely realize that by simply crossing this range a beautiful region is entered, 
where the prospect is as different as it is light from darkness. An entirely different climate characterizes the province of Mazadarin, comprising the northern slopes of the mountains and the Caspian littoral. With a humid climate the whole year round, and the entire face of the country covered with dense jungle, the northern slopes of the Ellsberg Mountains present a striking contrast to the barren, salt-frescoed foothills facing the south thereabout. Here, as it rushed, the moisture from the Caspian Sea does for the province of Meshadern what similar influences from the Pacific do for California. It makes all the difference between California and Nevada in the one case, and Meshadern and the desert-like character of central Persia in the other. In striking and effective contrast to the general aspect of death and desolation that characterize the desert wastes of Persia, an effect that is heightened by the ruins of Canaveraceries, or villages that are seldom absent from the landscape, are the cultivated spots around the villages. Wherever there is a permanent supply of water, there also is certain to be found a mud-built village, with fields of wheat and barley, pomegranate orchards, and vineyards. In a country of universal greenness, these would count for nothing, but situated like islands in the sea of somber gray about them, they often present an appearance of extreme beauty that the wandering observer is somewhat puzzled to account for. It is the beauty of contrast, the great and striking contrast between vegetable life and death. These impressions are nowhere more strongly brought into notice than when approaching Arden, a village I reach about five o'clock. Like almost all Persian towns and villages, Arden has evidently occupied a much larger area at one time than it does at present, and the mournful-looking ruins of mosques, gateways, walls, and houses are scattered here and there over the plain for a mile before reaching the present limits of habitation. The brown ruins of a house are seen standing in the middle of a wheat field. The wheat is of that intense greenness born of irrigation and of rich sandy soil. And the mud ruins, dead, desolate, and crumbling to dusk, look even more deserted and mournful from the great contrasting color and from the myriad stems of green young life that wave and nod about them with every passing breeze. The tumble-down windows and doorways form openings through which the blue sky and the green waving sea of vegetation beyond are seen as in a picture. And the ruined mud mosque, its dome gone, its windows and doorways crumbled into shapeless openings, seems like a weather-beaten skeleton of Persia's past, while the ever-moving waves of verdant life about it seem to be beating against it and persistently assailing it, like waves of the sea beating against an isolated rock. While engaged in fording a stream on the stony plain between roads, the Chagrin Shapir is with them, on a third bag of bones, worse, if possible, than the others. Taking the world over, there is perhaps no class of horses that are, subject to so much cruelty and ill-treatment as are the Chapar horses of Persia. With back raw, ribs countable a hundred yards away, spavined, blind of an eye, fistula, and cursed with every ill that horse-flesh in the hands of human brutes is subject to, the Chapar horse is liable to be taken out at any hour of the day or night, regardless of previous services being but just finished. He is goaded on with unsparing lash to the next station, twenty or perhaps thirty miles away, staggering beneath the weight of the traveller, or his servant, with ponderous saddlebags. This chapar, or post-service, is established along the great highways of travel between Tehran and Tabriz, Tehran and Meshed, and Tehran and Bushar, with a branch route from the Tabriz Trail to the Caspian port of Enzali. The stations vary from four to eight farsakhs apart. Not all the chapar horses are the wretched creatures just described, however, and by engaging beforehand the best horses at each station along the route, certain travelers have made quite remarkable time between points hundreds of miles apart. In addition to horses for himself and servants, the traveler is required to pay for one to carry the Chagrad Chapar who accompanies them to the next station to bring back the horses. The ordinary charge of one Karen of Farsik for each horse. It wouldn't be a Persian institution, however, 
if there wasn't some little underhanded arrangement on hand to mulk the traveller of something over and above the legitimate charges. Accordingly, we find two distinct measures of distance recognized between each station, the Chapar distance and the correct distance. If, for instance, the actual distance is six farsakhs, the Chapar distance will be seven, or seven and a half. The difference between the two is the Chapar's mokodal. Without mokodal, there was no question but a Persian would feel himself to be a miserable, neglected mortal. Aradan is another telegraph control station, and Mr. Stagno informs me that the telegraph G is looking forward to my arrival, and is fully prepared to accommodate me overnight, and, furthermore, that all along the line the people of the telegraph towns are eagerly anticipating the arrival of the sahib, with a marvelous vehicle, of which they have heard such strange stories. Aradan is reached about five o'clock. The road leading into the village has found excellent wheeling, enabling me to keep the saddle while following at the heels of a fleet-footed royat, who voluntarily guides me to the telegraph khana. The telegraph G is temporarily absent when I arrive, but his fardish lets me inside the office yard, spreads a piece of carpet for me to sit on, and with commendable thoroughness shuts out the crowd, who, as usual, immediately begin to collect. The quickness with which a crowd collects in a Persian town has to be seen to be fully comprehended. For the space of half an hour, I sit in solitary state on the carpet, and endure the wondering gaze and the parrot-like chattering of a thin, long row of villagers sitting astride the high mud wall that encloses three sides of the compound, and during the time find some amusement in watching the scrambling and quarreling for position. These irrepressible sightseers commenced climbing the wall from the adjoining walls and houses the moment the farish shut them out of the yard, and in five minutes they are as packed as close as books on a shelf, while others are quarreling noisily for places. In addition to this, the roof of every building commanding a view into the Chaparkana compound is formed with neck-craning, chattering people. Soon the telegraph jee puts in an appearance. He proves to be an exceptionally agreeable fellow, and one of the very few Persians one meets with having blue eyes. He appears to regard it as quite an understood thing that I am going to remain overnight with him, and proceeds at once to make the necessary arrangements for my accommodation, without going to the trouble of extending a formal invitation. He also wins my eternal esteem by discouraging, as far as Persian politeness and civility will admit, the intrusion of the inevitable self-sufficients who presume on their eminent respectability as loafers, in contradistinction to the half-naked tillers of the soil, to invade the premises and satisfy their inordinate curiosity, and their weakness for kalyan, smoking, and tea-drinking at another expense. After duly discussing between us a samovar of tea, we take a stroll through the village to see the old castle, and the ombars that supply the village with water. The telegraph G cleared the walls upon his arrival, but the housetops are out of his jurisdiction, and before starting, he wisely suggests putting the bicycle in some conspicuous position, as an inducement for the crowd to remain and concentrate their curiosity upon it. Otherwise, there would be no keeping them from following us about the village. We set it up in plain view on the Balakan, and returning from our walk, are amused to find the old Farish delivering a lecture on cycling. End of section three. Recording by Todd.